Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here for our church. There's a raging debate in the field of church organization and church growth on whether churches ought to be attractional or missional. Have you heard these words before? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. An attractional church is one that puts lots of time and effort into crafting a corporate worship experience that draws people in and leads them to Christ. It attracts people in. Such that some such churches who follow this model, they give great attention to the professionalism of their worship teams and stage management. They usually have a superb public speaker every week. And everything from the sign out front to the parking lot to the lighting and the snacks, it's all managed to have maximum impact on the visitor. Most megachurches, in my understanding, tend to be attractional. On the other hand, a missional church puts much time and effort into motivating and equipping every church member to live intentional lives that will draw people in and lead them to Christ. Such churches give lots of attention to relationships, to vision. They usually have a gregarious, dynamic leader who has the capacity for an incredible number of personal relationships. And all of the church's programs are designed with the mission in mind, such that the budget and the weekly schedule and the church staff all support the grassroots ministry taking place every day in people's homes and workplaces and neighborhoods. From my experience, it seems like most new church plants tend to be missional in their focus. Perhaps we should ask, what, what sort of church will Grace Fellowship be? And perhaps Dr. Eddie Cole got it just right when he wrote an article for Christianity Today this last August, where he said, every Christian should be missional and every church should be attractional. Therefore, every pastor should strive to lead with a both-and mentality. Now, the reason I tell you all this is because there is this burning question in our generation among church gurus about how to grow churches. And it's a great question because I think we all want the church to grow. Now, some people are more comfortable with a larger congregation and other people are more comfortable with a, a smaller congregation. And either preference is okay as long as we, we understand it's a preference and it's not the only right way to do it. But wouldn't you like to see more people in our generation believe in Christ? Wouldn't you like to see the big C church, the global church of Jesus Christ to grow and grow and grow until God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven? Jesus commanded us to pray to that end. Last week, we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that what the church needs most is people to guard the message of Jesus Christ. This week, we come to chapter 2. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 578. 
In chapter 2, the author of this letter helps his protege learn how to grow the church. He clarifies the mission that is to be undertaken, but then he also explains where to get the power to make this mission possible. You can see that right on your outline. We'll talk about the mission and then the power. And his main idea in this passage, and therefore my main idea this morning, is that the gospel, the good news, the message about Jesus Christ, is not only the message to be guarded, but it is also the source of strength for the one guarding it. The message about Jesus Christ is not only the message to be guarded, but also the source of strength or power for the one guarding it. And so whatever model of church growth we might pursue, we must not forget to draw our strength from the right place. Let me pray, and then I'll read 2 Timothy 2. Father in heaven, please help us to be a church that loves the Lord Jesus Christ with love indestructible. Help us to long to see your churches filled with people who guard the message that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we ask that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray you would help us now to understand your word in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 13. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding In everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. First, let's talk about the mission. And I'll come back to verse 1 when I discuss the power for the mission in the second paragraph. But the main thing the author does in this first paragraph is to explain the mission. In verse 2, he says, Take what you've heard from me and entrust it to others who will be able to teach others. This is the heart of church growth. And it really is as simple as this. Just listen to what I am saying right now. And insofar as I speak clearly and accurately about what the Bible says, in other words, if I have guarded the message faithfully, then 
Guard it yourself and entrust it to others. Teach them. Reason with them. Persuade them. Win them. Shape them. And then call them to guard the message and teach it to others who will do the same thing. It's a brilliant business plan which has proven its worth over and over and over again. Say what you will about Amway or Avon or Mary Kay or Pampered Chef or LuLaRoe or any of the dozens of other companies that use what we call multi-level marketing. Say what you will about them, but you have to admit the model is incredibly successful because it's all about word of mouth, friendships, and direct sales through relationships. These companies are simply trying to profit from Jesus's and Paul's plan for the growth of the church, which is, that plan is for people to talk to the people they know, to persuade them, to, to join them in buying a product, in hosting a party, or trusting in Jesus Christ. Now, the plan for the Christian church is much more than a multi-level marketing campaign for three reasons. First, in verses 3 and 4, those that join Jesus' campaign will suffer like soldiers. They will suffer like soldiers. They are not just in it for the money, and it will never be to them just a job. No, they are like soldiers. They do not get involved in civilian pursuits. They are dedicated to the highest level of commitment because this is their life, because Jesus is their life. All they want is to please him as their enlisting officer. Those that join in Jesus' campaign will suffer like soldiers. Second, the second reason why this isn't just a multi-level marketing campaign Verse 5 is because those that join Jesus' campaign will compete like qualified athletes. They're not looking just for ways to puff their sails or use deceptive or manipulative tactics. They don't hide what they're really doing until people give them what they want. No, no. The followers of Jesus Christ do what they do by the book. There is one judge, there is one lawgiver, or to use Paul's metaphor, there is one coach they play for, and those that follow Jesus compete according to his playbook. They compete according to the rules. The third reason why this isn't just what the world does in verse 6 is because those that join Jesus' campaign will labor hard like farmers. They are not like absentee landlords making others doing all the work but keeping all the profit for themselves. They're not recruiting minions under them to make all the sales connections while they skim a part of the commission to keep for themselves. No. The followers of Jesus Christ get out there and they work hard. They stay on task. They dedicate their lives to the propagation of the church and the protection of the message about Jesus Christ. So friends, please understand that when King Jesus makes you one of his people, he wants all of you. He wants you to love him and worship him, yes, 
but he also has a mission for you. He wants you to spread the word, to bear fruit, and to give him a return on his investment. And you do this by talking to people, engaging with them, by listening to what you're taught, and passing it on to others, insofar as what you've been taught is faithful. As commentator John Stott puts it, all those who, like Timothy, seek to pass on to others the good deposit they have themselves received, they must do so with the dedication of a good soldier, the law-abiding obedience of a good athlete, and the painstaking labor of a good farmer. How does this apply? Well, your application is in verse 7 for you. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over what I say. In particular, think over what you heard, even already this morning. Think over what you heard. Do you understand the message about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Think over what you've been hearing all along in church. Do you understand the message? Is there anything that doesn't make sense to you that you need more clarity on? Think it over. Also, think over the people God has chosen to place in your life. What would the Lord have you say to them? Who among them is ready for more investment, deeper relating? Who might be ready someday to teach others? Who is ripe now to hear the story of what God has done in your life. Think this over. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And also, think over how you have spoken to these people, or not spoken to these people. Where and when have you spoken too hastily and lost trust? Where and when have you spoken too sluggishly and missed divine opportunities? What lessons can you learn so that you don't keep making the same mistakes? How can you speak words that taste to them like salt, that leave them wanting more? Words that don't make them wish you would be quiet, but words that intrigue them and spur them on toward Christ. For a little over a year, we've joined with the other city churches to ask you to think over what you can do to reach your neighbors. Those are some people that God has put in your life on purpose. And in our culture, this is not something we can do without giving it careful thought and clear intention, because you know what happens if you don't think about it. Nothing happens. This is how people behave in our culture. Many of you are doing a great job at this, and I love hearing your stories. Keep it up. Keep doing what you can. And I've been challenged by this text, to think it over, to think things over more and consider my dedication, my obedience, and my labor. I have a neighbor in particular where we both help to shovel or snowblow each other's driveways, but I really need to be more intentional about having them over and getting to know them better. So we've got this step, this connection, and I need to think over how can I take that connection even farther with them. So please, think these things over. Discuss them in your small groups afterward. How would the Lord have you be more effective in this mission? Because if you don't give these things intentional thought, then nothing will change, and the mission will fall flat before it even gets started. 
Children, even you have others in your life that you can help. Maybe it's your brother or your sister or another child in your class or a child in your neighborhood. We need you to tell others about Jesus too. You're an important part of this. And maybe your teachers can spend a little time in Sunday school this morning helping you to think it over and to talk about briefly who God has put in your life, whom you can help to know Jesus or to grow in Jesus. So friends, here's the mission. The mission is for each of us to propagate the message about Jesus, the one who died for our sins so we could be right with God. And we do this by spending time with the right people who will then take up this charge themselves and carry it forward. But Paul, the author, goes on to explain how to get this done. Where do we get the power for this mission? What puts gas in our tanks to keep us chugging along, especially when, as he says in verse 3, we end up suffering for this mission? What will keep us going? Let me talk about the power. While Paul clearly wants to clarify the nature of the mission for Timothy, In verses 2 through 7, it's just as clear that the mission itself is not actually his main idea. Look again at how he begins the chapter. In verse 1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There is one thing that will empower Timothy to do all the stuff that he talked about in verses 2 through 7. There's one thing that will give him the dedication of a soldier the law-abiding obedience of a good athlete, and the painstaking labor of a good farmer. And friends, it's not a stronger church budget. It's not the support of the leadership. And it's not rising attendance figures. That's not what gives you the power to do this. It is nothing but the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by that. Sometimes. I have frequently and freely quoted verse 2 of this chapter to highlight the mission of personal disciple-making. But I and we must not neglect the power of verse 1. Personal disciple-making cannot take place apart from the strength that comes from the grace that is in King Jesus. This is a crucial crucial point. We love the message and we are to guard this message. And this is an amazing calling because the message is one about a rebellious and sinful people who deserve nothing but hell and eternal damnation. And yet their God became one of them and took their place. He did everything right on their behalf. And he suffered the penalty of his own furious and eternal wrath so that those who trust in him could go free. And now he uses those people to help him remake the world and advance the kingdom of his mercy and his righteousness. And all of this has nothing to do with their works. This is what Paul told us in chapter 1 last week, verse 9. It has nothing to do with their works. It has everything to do with his own purpose and his favor, which he lavished on them in Jesus Christ before the ages began. This is incredible 
news. And you know why this is incredible? It's because it means that not even your participation in the mission determines God's favor towards you. Such that on a good day, when you spoke about Christ and you showed maximum dedication to spread the good news, God now loves you anymore. Or such that on a bad day, when you struggled with laziness, selfishness, or indifference toward the mission, God now loves you any less. That is not true. So the message about the mission becomes itself the driving motivation behind the spread of the mission. Because you draw strength from this fact that Jesus died and you are right with God and your performance will never be counted against you. Not even your performance in living out this mission. And so you're free to take big risks and you're free to try scary things which might end up advancing the mission further. Let me give a simple illustration. I'm sure you've had boring teachers or professors before. Right? Those for whom teaching was nothing but a job and the students were nothing but unfortunate customers. I remember having a calculus professor who, as soon as he walked into the room, he would start talking, but not at us. He would be talking at the chalkboard. We had chalkboards back. And he would talk at the chalkboard, talking and writing for 52 minutes. And then as soon as he was done, he would talk his way out the door and he would pick up his bag and he'd leave. And we joked in the class, like, we should all just skip class one day. and But have somebody hiding out in the room. Let's see what, if anything would be different. We didn't think anything would be different if there are no students in the room. I'm sure you've had teachers like that. But I'm sure you've also had teachers or professors for whom teaching was a calling on their life. Women and men who were so passionate about their subject that you couldn't help but get excited about it too. And that's what we're talking about here. In the same way, those who entrust the good message to others must be those who are so enamored with the message that their enthusiasm for it is infectious. They draw their strength from the message itself. And that puts power behind their sharing of the message. How do you do that exactly? We have two suggestions here. First, remember your king when you suffer. This is now where he goes in verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, here is Paul, the great missionary to the nations of the ancient world, and he's an emissary of Jesus Christ himself, and he's writing a letter to his most promising student, the guy who's been pastoring a church for a long time, and he gets the mission, and he will continue in it to the end, and Paul's best counsel to this guy for gaining strength is, you see it? Remember Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Paul is not writing to a new believer or to an unbeliever. Timothy has been preaching Jesus Christ for years. How could he possibly ever forget Jesus Christ? Let me ask the same question of you. Because I ask this of myself. When you are running late for church, and you finally got all the children in the car, 
And right as you turn on the ignition, your three-year-old daughter says, I have to poop. How could you possibly forget Jesus Christ? I am sure he is in the front of your mind, such that his mercy and grace flow out of you effortlessly, right? Or when you're passed over for a promotion, and your pipes freeze, and your sore throat doesn't go away, and people start blaming you for things you didn't do. Or finals week descends upon you and you're losing your mind. Or someone close to you gets seriously injured or even passes away. How could you possibly forget Jesus Christ? I'm sure he's in the front of your mind such that his mercy and grace flow out of you effortlessly, right? Yeah, that's not how it works. You and I need to hear this instruction just as much as Timothy did. And we need to hear it often. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. As the offspring of David in verse 8, he was the heir to the throne of Israel. And by his resurrection from the dead, he was declared to be the king of the whole world. He is bigger than whatever you're going through. His grace is more lavish than you can imagine, and nothing you face can ever sever you from the bond of his love. Remember Jesus Christ. This is what we believe. This is what we preach. And sometimes this is just what gets us out of bed in the morning. Remember Jesus Christ. Especially when you suffer. The second tip for drawing in this power is to keep the end game in mind. Verses 10 through 13. In verse 10, Paul says that he can endure everything so that the chosen people of God, the elect, may obtain salvation with eternal glory. Do you see here what he's doing? Paul is drawing strength for himself from the fact that Jesus will pour out his grace on other people. Because he might give them eternal salvation, I'm sorry, salvation with eternal glory. This motivates Paul to endure his chains and his imprisonment. And then he also goes on to encourage Timothy to keep in mind the end game even for himself with this trustworthy saying that he tells in verses 11 through 13. And what he's saying here is that our fate is so wrapped up with Jesus' fate that we can die with him. Because if we do, all it means is that we will then finally truly live with him. And he says that we can endure to the end. Because when we do, it just means that we will reign with King Jesus. Now, if such things are true about you, that death is merely the doorway to your fullest life, and that endurance is but your campaign on your way toward the crown of Jesus Christ, then who could ever do you harm if these things are true about you? 
They could never touch these things awaiting you in your end game. So how can they get you down or take you out now? But Paul also does end his saying here with a sobering reminder. Whoever denies Jesus before men will be denied by Jesus in the presence of his father. Jesus himself, he said the same thing. And I think the fourth line of this poem is parallel to the third, such that we've got these two couplets of parallel lines, such that he's saying, if we abandon the faith, thus becoming faithless, then God remains faithful, that is, to his promise to destroy the faithless. Remember where Jesus said, told the parable, where God says to people who thought they'd been following him, depart from me, I never knew you. Friends, your past service to Christ can never become your security. Because remember, this has nothing to do with your works. Your past service to Christ can never become your security such that you think God owes you anything. Or that he will overlook your abandonment of him at the 11th hour. He calls us to endure to the end. Now, I do need to say, many, many Interpreters of this passage do read that fourth line as a contrast to the third line, and this is possible. We can read it such that faithless, if we are faithless, this doesn't mean that you abandon your faith in Christ, but it's talking about the fact that you might doubt from time to time, you fluctuate, you struggle. And of course, we all go through that. That is normal. That is normal. And then, if we read it that way, then he's saying God is will be faithful to his promise to preserve you to the end. He will take care of you because this is not about how you do. This is possible and you can take the poem this way. I personally think the first option makes more sense of the flow. But it's poetry and Paul doesn't explain it super carefully. However, we take that last line of the poem. It's clear that our knowledge of the end game which is ours because of the grace of Jesus Christ, that is a major motivator for the present. So as we look ahead to the grace yet to come for us through Jesus Christ on the last day, we can suck some of that grace into the present day. Give me some of that to power me through the bumps that I face constantly. How does this apply? For those of you here today who don't yet trust Jesus or might not consider yourself his follower, I'm talking a lot right now about how the source of the Christian's strength provides the power to keep on. But I must advise you that if the source of your strength is anything but Jesus, then that source of your strength will be your undoing. If you are trusting in yourself, denying Jesus' salvation, it will not end well. To borrow a quote from the classic movie Braveheart, everyone dies, but not everyone really lives. Because we will all die, and it's only those who die with Jesus who will have true life in the end. And I don't want you to die an eternal death. Please trust in Jesus. You can't ever earn his favor by what you do, but you can take hold of his favor by just trusting him with your life. 
That's all it takes. So in conclusion, we need everybody to be a part of this mission with us. Please, take what you've heard. Consider who are the people in your life that God wants you to invest this message into. And then do it. Just give it a shot. And then ask those people to do the same. We need dedication. We need obedience. And we need diligence. These things don't earn God's favor. We get strength for them from God's favor. So don't lose track of what will motivate you for this mission. Don't look to yourself for strength. Don't look deep within to find your true self. Okay? Such drivel is all around us in this culture of ours. Don't do that. No, please. Look to the grace of Jesus Christ. Remember your king when you suffer. And keep the end game in mind. These things give us unstoppable power for the mission of making disciples. So you see, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, is not only the message to be guarded, but it is also the source of strength for those who guard it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please strengthen us by this very message that we guard. Please empower us to be your people. Help us to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David. He is our strength. He is our Lord. He is our King. And because of him, it is worth it to die with him because we will find true life. And it is worth it to endure because then we will reign with him. Please help us to keep the end game in mind that we might be your people and we might advance the mission you've entrusted to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.